Hello, and welcome to this podcast from Consider This. Please let me know what you think and tell others about us on social media. This podcast was originally broadcast live on Northumberland 89.7 FM. You can hear this show live every Friday at noon. Thank you for downloading this program, and I hope you enjoy it. Hello, I'm Robert Washburn, and welcome to Consider This Northumberland, a current affairs program dedicated to the issues facing our community. We talk to the people on the front lines and those behind the scenes who make a difference in your life in Northumberland County. So I'm asking you, the listener, to take some time out of your busy day to consider this. There was a major shift in the way Ontario has responded to the pandemic over the past week. The Omicron variant is a game changer. The speed at which it spreads technically known as transmissibility, has left the healthcare system in tatters. The first segment of today's show, you will hear local MPP David Piccini explain the government's response and why he thinks it is effective. He will discuss major changes in the way policymakers, public health officials, and scientists are tracking the virus and its spread. He will address the impact of recent changes on everything from schools to kids, parents, and teachers. Then, you will hear Dr. Natalie Bocking, Chief Medical Officer for the Health Unit. She's going to give another perspective on these changes, especially when it comes to tracking the spread of the virus locally. She will take a deeper look at the numbers and what we should be watching for as we go forward. But first, a conversation about Omicron and its impact on Northumberland County. I'm so pleased to have with me today, David Piccini, the MPP for Northumberland Peterborough South. Welcome back to Consider This. Thanks very much for having me, Rob. A lot has gone on over the past year, but before we look back and look forward, the pandemic is the top of mind for so many people. How is the government's series of recent announcements an effective response to the skyrocketing numbers of COVID cases, in your opinion? Thanks, Rob. That's a great question. So obviously referring to the time-limited measures that the government uh, just uh, implemented in response to Omicron, a lot of people are wondering sort of what precipitated that. Over the weekend, uh, we had a call from Dr. Alistair Brown, who sits on the science table, who'd been doing some number crunching and updated modeling and shared with the Premier uh, a very real concern. I mean, we're seeing a global uh, spread of Omicron, the high transmissible uh, nature of of this variant. And uh, while, you know, indicators in other jurisdictions, we do know um, that uh, that it it is less severe um, because of its highly transmissible nature, the way, you know, the concern is going after the elderly, the vulnerable, and also the integrity of our healthcare system. So the two things in our plan uh, for reopening that precipitated a pause and or measures were, were a new variant of concern. So check that happened and uh, healthcare capacity. So Matt Anderson, who joined the premier at the announcement, which was who's head of Ontario Health, who works closely with all of our hospitals. I often say, Rob, to put a local spin on it, to do my job effectively, I need to hear from constituents. And I know this is incredibly difficult uh, for many. This is, uh, you know, difficult isn't even an appropriate word. This is devastating uh, for many. And, you know, listening to local hospitals, Eric, uh, Hannah, Susan Walsh locally, uh, concerns over capacity. And you asked, is it effective? And, and I think, you know, history will look back 
at different responses uh, to COVID-19 factually and, and data um, to the 3,800 plus families affected in the last year who've died uh, in New Jersey, um, you know, per, per million, uh, that, that, that matters. And we know that statistically Ontario, which sits at 600 and something per million, so dramatically different than many comparative, uh, comparative uh, jurisdictions, um, you know, we want to avoid those, those, those lot, the, the very real and, and awful loss of life and, and protecting a system. So without question, there's been challenges, um, Rob, and, uh, and, you know, we're constantly leaning on the advice of Dr. Moore, the science table, and, and pivoting. People often, you know, want, like, I wish that the pandemic was linear. And that we, you know, we knew and had a crystal ball, but the reality is we don't and government governments have to pivot and uh, people are sick of that word. I get it. So, I mean, I don't know what I more I could say, Rob, but I, it's just I anguish over this. This is not easy. Um, and, and I share my constituents concerns at the cabinet table and uh, and with all of my colleagues. You mentioned numbers several times in your response, and the government has shifted in its data collection related to COVID, and that has many implications. It seems to focus on cases that end up in, either in hospitalization or in ICUs or in death, as you've just mentioned. Meanwhile, there will be significant loss of data to measures uh, around the spread or the extent of the impact of the virus on the population as a whole. Now, some scientists and researchers are already expressing concerns that this will impact on future decision-making and good science. How do you justify the dramatic change in the way that we're collecting data around COVID? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I think that worldwide, uh, what we're seeing and, and what we've we've said and indicated is that uh, when we're protecting the, the integrity of the healthcare system, it's around hospitalizations. I've been very vocal, um, you know, personally, and in response to what I've heard from constituents, that we really need to look at hospitalizations. Um, I, I think, Rob, it's no secret that 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 in today's media cycle, uh, gone are the days, and, and you'll recall, I mean, where, where we would see a thoughtful article that was published, and and social media has changed that game. These uh, smartphones have changed the game of, of reporting. And, and so, you know, from wh where, you know, where I'm going uh, with this is that uh, the, the, the fear and, and the, you know, how this impacts everyday Ontarians, I think want to get back to the hospitalizations, to the integrity of the healthcare system. I think uh, empowering individuals through rapid tests. I mean, science evolves and the ability uh, to make one's decision through the use of rapid tests. Um, you know, I think to the climate change conference that I recently went to at the NHS, um, you know, we were, we were given uh, rapid tests every day and we would upload it uh, to the NHS. Now we don't have a national service akin to the NHS in Canada, provincially, uh, provinces are responsible working in closely with the feds on healthcare transfer. But, um, you know, to answer your, your question directly, I think that was the right decision guided by the chief medical officer of health. And uh, moving forward, I think we all um, are looking to life with COVID and how we manage that and how we live with it. Well, I appreciate all of that. And, and I understand, you know, the, the significance of those two factors, hospitalization and, and ICUs and, and deaths, sorry, the three factors. But um, if we're ever going to understand the, the, the overall impact 
on Ontario and Ontarians, when we don't have methods of reporting who's getting sick, even if it's mild or whatever, how do scientists or policymakers like yourself and your government make good decisions about what direction we take when we can't even understand the scope of it? Now, if I, you know, parents are obviously, that's a concern to them. So how, again, how do we make good policy decisions and good scientific decisions? And I mean, you've said to me in past conversations, you know, you rely on the good science of those who are, are around you to make good decisions. So, but if they don't have the data, how do they do that? So can well, you address that? Absolutely. And simply put, uh, they do. And so it's about how we're reporting. So first and foremost, um, my ministry, Environment, Conservation and Parks, is working closely with health on wastewater monitoring. Live real-time data that uh, many consider far more effective um, than, than lagging reporting. And I think it looks at, at resources, Rob, in terms of how our public health are tasked with, with the flu. It's flu season, getting flu um, shots are tasked with supporting uh, the vaccine rollout and, and the massive Herculean task that that is. And we know that simply put that vaccines at this juncture help uh, protect. And so I think when we look at ways to work with public health and with all of the tools at our disposal, wastewater reporting, it's effective. Israel uses it in a number of European jurisdictions and Ontario was a leading jurisdiction in leaning on that. So we, we are getting uh, the data from that. School boards as well, um, in terms of school closure and when you reach a critical point um, that, you know, that this is affecting decision making. We, we know over the last two years, public health measures and empowering local school boards to make those decisions. And we have those conversations. So I don't think it's quite a black or white. I think it's we're using the tools, um, like I said, wastewater reporting and, and millions go into those investments, Rob, that, uh, you know, we have scientists and experts with real time reporting. And, and I think why that matters, that gives us real indicators of where we're seeing spread and uh, enables and empowers us to make uh, science and evidence-based decisions as a result. And so, um, you know, hospitalization, and as we said, uh, the, those, those real data, real-time reporting, that helps us make uh, decisions. Uh, Ontario Health Table, where we, where we sit on a, on a weekly, daily basis, we make decisions there, and, and those experts are hearing and, and living and breathing the realities in real time. So, I, I, you know, I take your point, but I, th I don't think it's a black or white as much as it is what tools are we utilizing, and I think we're using very effective tools. Why, why aren't we hearing more than about, you know, initiatives like you just described to me? I, I mean, why wasn't that part of, of, of overall announcements? So when they're pulling back on certain data that they're saying, at the same time here, we've upped these things and here you can expect to see these numbers. When are we going to start to see, for example, the, the program that you just described? When are we going to start to see those numbers made public so that we can all have a better understanding of the impact on, on people and how many people are being affected? Yeah, I, I think that it's an important mechanism and tool that we have been using over the past uh, year, public health and those experts are using it. I also think, um, Rob, as well, that this is akin to an announcement that we made, which is a shift, a, a shift in, in a pure case count. Um, I'll give you a very real example, Rob, just to put a different spin on it. I had multiple people calling in very emotional uh, today in this office saying the uh, case counts are having a very real impact on my family and, and on our decision. And we want to know, you know, relative to hospitalizations. And they said, Dave, when we look at hospitalizations relative to that, we don't 
um, find uh, a, a pure obsession solely on case counts as an effective mechanism. It's instilling fear and angst in my family. So, you know, I have to weigh that as well uh, with empowering scientists and decision makers to make real-time decisions based on the data. And as I said, wastewater reporting we've been doing for the past year and are continuing um, as a valuable indicator with public health. And in, in Omicron, um, Rob, as the science evolves, there, we're saying pure case counts, people are going to get it. You heard Dr. Moore go out and say that's not an effective mechanism um, for us uh, with, with how highly transmissible this is. We're looking at hospitalizations. We're looking at how spread is occurring. Uh, but with something spreading as fast as Omicron, the reality is most of us are going to get that. Um, and the question then becomes, are we ensuring public health are using the resources appropriately to target jabs in arms, which gives us protection, um, getting protections into schools, into long-term care settings, into hospital settings to equip them uh, for the challenges ahead. You mentioned schools, and I'd like to talk briefly about that. Uh, many parents and teachers are expressing deep concerns over the return of children to schools. Uh, what can you say to parents uh, who are worried about the safety of their children and the measures that the government's taking? Yeah, so it's it's a very very difficult decision, um, Rob. We you know many want their kids in school. That data, which I'll share with you uh, offline, so that you you have that to share with with viewers and listeners. Um, that was shared with us over the weekend, modeling and, and the conversation with Dr. Brown, um, you know, that, that in the science table, this, uh, you know, this, this is action, right? As I said, COVID's not linear. We have to be able to act when we get information because you would be having very real questions to me, David, you were given the information, you chose not to act, why? Uh, so we convened an emergency cabinet meeting and had to take uh, decisive action. Now, Having said that, um, it's very difficult. I know kids want to be in class. And I think a couple things. One, there was a, a mammoth effort to get rapid tests out to families. I think as far as I know, we were the only province that did that um, prior uh, to the holidays. That's a Herculean effort. As I said, I was at St. Francis, one of our local schools where I saw firsthand um, you know, them packaging it for students. We were one of the first uh, to look at, at masking and public health guidelines to equip additional nurses um, to support schools, additional janitorial staff, PPE, ventilation. Um, you know, I just spoke with the board as recently as today on, on all of the upgrades in every single school and classroom, there's been HVAC upgrades and or coupled with HEPA filtration units. And so that's been done. And on the N95 masks, which again, the science evolves and, and the scientists have said, look, you've got to use now N95 masks because this is so highly transmissible. We're worried about absenteeism, obviously, with teachers and everybody contracting it. As I just mentioned, it's hit home in my local office. So what's cool about that is we're now using N95 masks from Brockville, not from China. Um, thanks to investments this government's made, partnering with industry, not driving manufacturing out of the province, but in encouraging it to come in and setting up a plant in Brockville. So we're getting that out to all of our schools. That's been a Herculean effort as well. The supply chains, getting it out. It takes time. Um, I'm always responsive and appreciate feedback from t-shirts, the board, families. We know kids want to be learning. Um, and, uh, and, and we're, we're working, you know, around the clock to make sure schools are safe places to learn. And I think I can, you know, hopefully have pointed to a few firsts and a few things that Ontario leads the way in doing to make sure they're safe. That was local MPP David Pacini.
Next is Dr. Natalie Bocking, Chief Medical Officer for the Health Unit. She's going to provide a different perspective on some of the points you've already heard. She is very clear about what people can do to protect themselves. She will also talk about the stats to watch and the steps to take to stay safe and healthy during this rampant spread of COVID-19. I'm so pleased to have with me today Dr. Natalie Bocking, Chief Medical Officer for the Halliburton Kawartha Pine Ridge District Health Unit. Welcome back to Consider This. Thanks for having me. The provincial government has mandated changes to the data collection surrounding COVID-19. Could you give us a synopsis of those changes, please? So the the changes that we're seeing are as a result of changes in uh, access to testing. Uh, so uh, the our data systems for most infectious diseases really rely on laboratory confirmed reports of infectious diseases. And those laboratory confirmed reports are sent automatically to the health unit. And that's what's included in our, our surveillance system, our numbers. Uh, and that's the same for most other reportable diseases, uh, whether it be measles, mumps, everything else. What has changed is that we don't have capacity as a province uh, to support everyone in accessing PCR tests. So by limiting uh, the number of PCR tests that are available, we know that the numbers that we're reporting as part of that surveillance system are only a small uh, component of the the entire picture of what uh, the virus is doing in, in the community. My understanding, too, is that there is even specific groups now that are not going to be reporting back as well. For example, schools and daycare settings are not going to be reporting back as well. Is that correct? That's correct. Are there any other groups that were reporting back that were sort of outside of the general population being tested? Uh no, the, the remaining groups that continue to be eligible really are those high-risk healthcare settings and uh, congregate settings such as group homes, correctional institutions. Uh, all of these settings remain eligible for PCR testing. So how are parents and grandparents and caregivers going to know what is going on at local schools or at the local daycare if the data is no longer being con- collected? So there's a couple of things, I think, uh, at baseline to remind ourselves. So one is the presumption right now is there's a lot of COVID in the community. And I think from a starting place, uh, all of us need to presume that if we have symptoms, we could potentially have COVID uh, and that we, we follow the public health measures because we could be exposed to COVID should we be having social gatherings or this sort of thing. So I think that the, the numbers themselves are less meaningful, really, given the amount of, of spread that it's just out there. For schools, like we do with other infectious diseases, one of the tools or indicators that we use is uh, percent absenteeism. So uh, for other illnesses, we sometimes look at uh, the number of kids that might be home because they're symptomatic, maybe presumed to have COVID. And that will help us uh, overall look at what, how the school might be impacted. The other thing I might just add to that is really schools uh, are a reflection of broader community spread. I, I think certainly in our region, as well as other regions in the province, 
we haven't seen widespread transmission of COVID in schools. We see school-aged children uh, uh, getting COVID from community exposures. Uh, and uh, so if there's widespread COVID-19 in the community, we will see that reflected uh, in school-aged children. It sounds a bit, though, when I'm listening to you answer, like we're guessing a lot. And I, I mean, this means that, you know, the public and de decision makers like public health officials, politicians, doctors, scientists who are leading our, our response will not have a full picture. Shouldn't that be a concern? So I think that this new variant, Omicron, has changed a lot of the thinking uh, and our approach to this. There's features of Omicron that have forced us to look at this differently. And th this also means really everyone in the public having to shift the way that they think about Omicron. And part of this is moving towards a place where COVID-19 uh, is part of the collection of viruses that we have spreading kind of at any given time and not this very unique uh, thing that results in community lockdowns. So previously, we were very focused on numbers, uh, on actual case numbers. Because Omicron is so infectious and really causes, for many people, just mild illness, the absolute case numbers are really less, less relevant. What is being used to inform decision-making is the impact of severe illness. So looking at hospital admissions, ICU admissions, those are the indicators really behind uh, the, the core public health decision-making that's being done at a provincial level related to other public health measures. It feels like now things are gonna be left to individuals to make decisions or for that matter, employers as well. Uh, about what to do using rapid testing. Um, it is not as reliable or accurate. We, we've heard that. How does that become a good method of controlling the spread of the virus when it is not as accurate? And, and we know, you know, some people may go out in public or to work when they're sick or exposing others. We've seen that in the past. So if people are concerned about getting the virus because they are vulnerable, how do they stay safe? So we, we go back to our basic principles around staying safe, uh, sorry, staying safe with, our, with masking, with distancing, um, and, uh, and that will continue to help to protect those individuals that might have um, compromised immune systems. Our other big key is vaccination. Uh, while we know that two doses of our COVID vaccines uh, are not as effective against Omicron as they were against Delta, that additional booster dose really provides the protection we need to help us get through this wave. So we have tools that we know will work. Um, the, uh, I think part of this is the reality of what we can, uh, we can do within our system. And Omicron has changed that. The reality is we do not have the capacity to do PCR testing the way we did before. And we do not have the resources at a health unit to be able to do case management of everyone that has a PCR positive test or a rapid antigen positive test. Similar to other viruses that people might get, uh, we expect people to uh, think of their, their collective responsibility to keep our communities well and protect others. This far into the pandemic, people know that if they get symptoms, 
they, they think they have COVID-19, they should stay home. Uh, and I think we need to rely on uh, each other as a community to do that, uh, given that we, we do not have the capacity to be calling every single person to remind them to stay at home. Has this drawn into light uh, weaknesses within the public health system and within the uh, other health uh, parts of the system? In, in demonstrating maybe that we do not have a particularly uh, robust health system, public health system in place? No, I think that the, the levels that we're seeing, that there's no public health system in the world that would have the capacity to be calling every single person that tests positive through a rapid antigen test. It, it's just not realistic. I think, however, that both the public health system, as well as our, our hospital systems, were challenged with health human resources, uh, and in some instances funding prior to this pandemic. Especially in public health, we're in this cycle where we have maybe uh, an infectious disease that causes an emergency. Uh, we uh, contribute significant resources for a short period of time. And then things calm down five years later, 10 years later, it's no longer prioritized. Uh, and we slowly defund public health until something else happens again. And it's, it's a repeated cycle that we can look at over the last many decades. And so I, I'm hopeful that the lessons learned from this pandemic will contribute to maintaining a sustainable, robust public health system. Now, in the short term, all this may make sense. But what about the bigger picture in terms of understanding this pandemic down the road, whether scientists or public health officials can go back and they're not going to have the same scope of numbers, again, for the planning for the future or for planning responses going forward? Um, how do you respond to that? I think there are other indicators that we can look at. Uh, I mentioned before some of our hospital statistics, such as number admitted to hospital, ICU admissions, things such as uh, test positivity, uh, and then wastewater surveillance are all uh, tools that are part of the, uh, uh, looking at this big picture. And uh, this virus has shown again and again that we have to adapt. <laughs> we continue to learn new things uh, and we have to change our response as a result of that. It's interesting you mentioned wastewater because I interviewed our MPP, David Pacini, earlier this week, and he said the government will be tracking wastewater to measure rates of exposure. Can you explain how this works and when we will see this data reported locally? So wastewater surveillance is a, a tool um, and part of that toolbox whereby uh, there's a, a filter or essentially a unit we can call it that is used to uh, detect viral levels in wastewater or, or sewage water. Um, it, it has been, it was initially started as a pilot at different locations around the province uh, and has been rolled out to I think almost all health units at this point in time. So just this last fall, um, we had some units installed uh, in Coburg as well as in, in Lindsay uh, and for a, a brief time in Minden. So it's a tool that can be used as either a uh, an early indicator if you're seeing levels increase in, in wastewater uh, or be a level of the extent of community transmission. So you're seeing it go up a lot uh, or maybe just a little bit. Uh, 
It's not something that has been implemented in every single uh, wastewater treatment plant across the province. So uh, there, there's something that we refer to in public health as sentinel surveillance. So you have a couple of key sites that will give you really an indication of what's happening. It's not the answer to all of our surveillance needs. Uh, it's one of the tools that we have available. And when will we start to see this being these numbers or this uh, being made public uh, so that we know what's going on? So it, it's, uh, it isn't something that every health unit uh, reports on on a day-to-day -day basis. It's not something that we get data on on a day-to-day -day basis, the same as we do with active case, num case numbers. So we get periodic reports of, of what it looks like. Um, it hasn't been fully established yet uh, at our sites within HKPR that it's been built into our system as it's still... Um, the, the team, the scientific team that works on it, that's separate from the health unit as a provincial team, uh, has to do all of those initial checks and balances to ensure that it's set up appropriately. Uh, so I don't anticipate that this is something that you'll see an everyday change or indicator on, on our COVID dashboard, but it's something that if we're seeing a change, we might be able to, uh, to, to share with the community and say, you know, our wastewater is picking up perhaps some early signals please be extra cautious. There could be some impact of this on vaccinations. You mentioned how important vaccinations are. If people see lower numbers, they may feel that they don't need to get vaccinated because the pandemic is subsiding. What do you say to those people who may start interpreting the data this way? We know that this virus uh, in particular is not one that is going away. Uh, it's part of a family, the family of coronaviruses. Uh, it continues to mutate. Uh, it is something that we will need to learn to live with. Uh, and so uh, there are many other viruses that vaccines have proven to be key in helping to um, really prevent uh, their, the complications of at a, at a community level. So uh, as much as COVID-19 is not going to be going away, vaccination is going to continue to be a major, major tool in our toolbox to prevent illness, hospital admissions, and, and very severe disease and death from COVID-19. Dr. Bocking, I want to thank you so much for talking to me today. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me on the show. That was Dr. Natalie Bocking, Chief Medical Officer for the Halliburton Kawartha Pine Ridge District Health Unit. I want to thank my guests this week for talking to me, and I want to thank all the listeners for tuning in today. Please join me again next week when we will talk to the people on the front lines and those behind the scenes who make a difference in your life in Northumberland County. So please tune in. If you would like to listen or share this or any podcast, please check out my website at consider-this.ca. There you will find past podcasts, news, and other information about life and politics in Northumberland County. Or you can go to the radio station's website at northumberland897.ca. I'm Robert Washburn. Thanks for taking time out of your day to listen in, and I hope over the week you will continue to consider this. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Consider This. If you have any comments or would like to suggest a story, please contact me at considerthisnorthumberland at gmail.com or you can message me on Facebook at Consider This. If you enjoyed this podcast, 
or are looking for more news and information about Northumberland County, please check out my website at consider-this.ca. That's consider-this.ca. And don't forget to share. And again, thank you for listening, and stay tuned for more from Consider This.